We hope you'll come back. We're uh, going through the Gospel of Luke. And if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Luke chapter 9. And let me remind uh, the men who are on the President's Council that we have a meeting right after the uh, lesson today over in the far corner of the room. We are in Luke chapter 9. And let me remind you that last week, James, Peter, and John went up on the mountain, and before them, Jesus was transfigured. What was on the inside came out, and they heard a voice from heaven that said, Obey Jesus. And so we pick up with the scene right after that, and we are in chapter 9 and verse 37. Chapter 9 and verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Now the crowds are always prominent in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, they're, they're, they're always there. They're waiting for him if to come out of the house. If he's up on a mountain praying, they're waiting for him when he comes down. Sort of like the crowds that we see uh, with movie stars. And that's just the situation that Jesus has to contend with. It must be very difficult, and, uh, but he contends with it on a regular basis. Now, we're going to cover today verses 37 through 50. Okay? And each, if you would just read through those verses, you would say they don't seem to be related. But they are linked together. They, each one of these little sections in verses 37 through 50 focus on one of the failures of the apostles. So you'll see that the common denominator of each one of these little sections is the, the apostles and their failures. So here's how we're going to divide the section. Verses 37 through the first half of verse 43, we're going to see the apostles fail to cast out a demon. That's verses 37 through 43, the first half of 43. Then the second half of verse 43 through verse 45, we see the apostles fail to understand Jesus' death. He teaches them, they don't understand it. They're not getting it. Then verses 46 through 48, they fail to understand God's definition of greatness. And then finally, verses 49 and 50, they fail to accept an outsider, a person that's not part of their group, okay? Not part of the inner circle. So let's look at verses 37 through 40, and here's what it says. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. And suddenly, a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. It departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored, I, so I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now evidently, this man has a, it's a desperate situation. He has a problem here. And when Peter, James, and John, and Jesus were up on the mountain, the other nine were left in the valley. And he comes to those disciples and asks for help, and they cannot help the, the situation. Now, the situation, the symptoms of this particular situation 
are very similar to epilepsy because we have the young man going into a seizure, foaming at the mouth, struggling, and so forth. And I don't know if you've been uh, listening or watching the news lately, but if you have, you know the name Jesse Hall, six-year-old girl from Alito, whose parents, uh, she goes into these seizures. She's done this all of her life. And in order to stop the seizures, her parents have taken her to Johns Hopkins Hospital, University Hospital in Baltimore, and Ben Carson, the great pediatric surgeon, uh, who is a Christian, a strong Christian, has written several Christian books, operated on her in order to stop the seizures, and they're hoping that her life will come back to, to be normal. Now, I want you to notice something, though, in this particular situation. In verse 39... I want you to notice it's not a physical situation alone. It says the spirit seizes him, and then he convulses. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't make a distinction between spiritual and physical. In fact, in the Eastern world today, they don't make a distinction between physical and spiritual. That's a Western thing. We put spiritual in this corner, that's a spiritual problem. We put physical over in that corner, that's a physical problem. And never the twain shall meet. But if you go to China, or you go to the East, they understand that all physical problems have a spiritual base. They don't make that distinction. And neither did they in the ancient world. So that's the first thing. It implies that this young man is sick because of his spiritual problem, a demon spirit. Notice also at the end of verse 38, he is this man's only son. Which means that if he dies, notice only son, if he dies, the family line does not continue. Which is very important. Especially in the ancient world. You've been watching the news, the earthquake in China. In China, the families were limited to one child. If the child who died was a son, that means the family line, the name of that family line doesn't go on. Because that child's father was also an only son. And that man's father was an only son because in China you're limited to one child. So it'll wipe out the entire family line. And that's why this is such a serious situation. It has not only a it's a physical problem, but it's a social problem. It affects even the name of the family line. Now, very interestingly, what we have here is something else I think Luke's audience would recognize immediately. We don't recognize it, but they would recognize it. A demon has invaded this young man's body. A Jewish young man's body. Just as Rome has invaded Israel. Rome has taken over, has invaded, and has its occupation troops right there in Palestine, and it's controlling the Jewish people, the same as this demon's controlling this young man. And Luke wants us to understand that the power behind Rome is Satan. Because that's what Satan does. He controls. He'll go into a body and he'll control. He'll go into a nation and he'll control. And force that person or that nation, those peoples of that nation, to do what he wants them to do. And that's very important. And this young man is helpless, and guess what? Jesus' disciples are helpless as well. They have no way 
to solve this problem. So look at verse 41. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse or crooked generation, how long shall I be with you and you bear with me? Now I believe that Jesus is directing these words toward his disciples, not toward the crowd. Because he's been with his disciples and he says that they are faithless and they are perverse. Now, what in the world is he talking about? He's actually quoting the words of Moses. These are the same words that Moses said to the nation of Israel after the Exodus. They come out, God miraculously delivers them, and guess what? They start complaining. Uh, they don't like God's provisions. They said, we had it better off back in Egypt. We don't like the way God's doing things. And so they became faithless. Now imagine this. Here's Moses and the people of Israel at the Red Sea, and there's no way to cross, and God opens the Red Sea. Now, if you saw that kind of miracle, would you ever doubt God again that he's going to take care of your needs the next day? But guess what? They became faithless, and they wanted God to do things their way, not his way, which was the right way, their way, which was crooked or perverse. Now, the disciples, have they seen Jesus do great miracles? And guess what? Now they're faithless. In fact, back in verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus gave them power and authority over demons and illness. And they came back amazed. Even the demons are subject to us. And guess what? Now, at the end of the chapter, they can't cast out one demon. And they feel, well, we can't do anything. You probably have to get this kid to the doctor. <clears throat> so he says the same thing to them that Moses said to the children of Israel after the great Exodus miracle. So then look what Jesus said at the end of verse 41. He says, bring your son here. And as he was coming, as he was still coming, bringing his son the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to the father. So what we have is Jesus says, okay, uh, bring the kid here. And as he does, as the father brings the kid, the demon takes over. Look at that first half of verse 42. The demon's in charge. As he was still coming, the demon threw him to the ground in convulsion. But then, look at the next word. Then. Then Jesus became in charge. Jesus took over. The demon was in charge at the beginning of verse 42. Jesus is in charge at the end of verse 42. Look at this. He rebuked him. One. He rebuked the unclean spirit. Two. Healed the child. Three. Gave him back to his father. One, two, three. Just like that. One, two, three. That's how simple it was. All with a word. All with a single word. And by the way, that's how Christ says Rome will be defeated. You see, if you're faithless and you want to do things the human way, you will want the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome with the sword. But Jesus will overthrow all the world systems with the word. He'll come back, the scripture says, in Revelation 19, mm -hmm. 
and there's a sword that proceeds out of his mouth. It is the word of God. Amen. And with that, all the world systems and Satan and everyone will be destroyed. And he does it nonviolently, simply with his word. And then, look what it says in verse 43. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. They just began to praise God and worship God and saw God's greatness there because they knew this was a miracle from God. Now, by the way, if you were this father, this is Father's Day, wouldn't that be the, probably the greatest Father's Day present you'd ever have? Because this right here is a story of a father who gets back his son. I imagine this man made all kinds of bargains with the Lord. I pastor was talking this morning about how we make bargains with the Lord. Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I'll do this. He probably made every one of those vows. I ask you, how many were a good father? How many were a bad father? Joe and I raised our hands. We were bad fathers. <laughs> this man probably said, Lord, I've been a bad father. If you heal my son, I'll be a good father. <clears throat> and he brought, brought his son to Jesus' disciples. They could do nothing, nothing, but Jesus does it in a word. Now, here is the amazing thing. Look in the middle of verse 43 because what we're going to do uh, in 40 beginning of verse 43 all amazed that means the entire crowd were amazed but beginning in the middle of verse 42 we come to the second section the second division where the disciples do not understand about Jesus death now watch the middle of verse 43 but while Everyone marveled at the things. They were still ooing and eyeing. While they marveled at these things which Jesus did, he spoke to his disciples. And he said, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they, that's the disciples, did not understand this saying. Jesus reveals that he's going to die. He's going to be turned over to the hands of men. And they don't understand this. How can it be that one minute Jesus defeats a demon, and the next minute a human being is going to defeat him? That doesn't make sense, does it? It seems like Jesus should be able to defeat everybody. No one should be able to defeat him. They have no problems with the healing. They do have problems with Jesus dying and his death. It just doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't jive. How can you be have power over a demon, but someone's going to turn you over into somebody's hands and they're going to be able to beat you? just doesn't even make sense. So I think that they're very confused. And look what it says in the middle of verse 45. It says... And it was hidden from them that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Notice those four words right there. First of all, number one, they did not understand. Look, not understand. Number two, it was hidden from them. The meaning of that statement that he would be handed over. They did not perceive it. That's the third thing. And fourth, they were afraid to ask. Now, why the confusion, why the inability, 
to understand what Jesus said. If you said to me, somebody's going to turn me over and I'm going to be a black pop, I think I would be able to understand that. Now, why couldn't they understand it? It says because it was hidden from them and they were not able to perceive it. Now, what does that mean? It was hidden. Was it that God closed their minds so they couldn't understand? That's one option. Or is it that they had preconceived ideas of what the Messiah was going to do, and it didn't jive? They said, well, boy, that doesn't make sense. You see, if you start off with the wrong premise, he's going to overthrow Rome with force. If you start off with that premise, and he says, I want to be turned over. Uh, you will be confused. The meaning will be hidden from you. So we don't know whether it's God hiding the meaning or whether it was because they had the wrong premise. We just don't know, but they're not getting it. So we see their failure to understand about his death. Now look at the third section, beginning at verse 46. Their failure to understand God's measure of greatness. Look at verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, when I see that, I laugh. This is what I call one of those moments where Luke's readers would just start rolling over. They want to know, when the kingdom comes, who's going to be greatest in it? Will it be John? Will it be, you know, Thaddeus? Will it be Levi? Why would you even ask the question when you couldn't cast the demon out? Now, I think the question should be, since we're all failures, uh, who will be sitting in the back when the kingdom arrives? See, this doesn't make sense. It shows you how distorted their thinking is. They start asking, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Because according to their understanding of the kingdom, Christ is going to rise up, overthrow Rome with great force. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to be a king. He'll need an administration. Who's going to be the vice president? Who's going to be the secretary of state? Who's going to get those offices? Well, I imagine Peter said, well, I should get it. I'm the one that recognized it at the beginning that you were the Christ. And then maybe James and John and said, well, we were up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I should be the Secretary of State. And I should be the Vice President, John said. And remember, John and James were, and we know from other passages, that their mother actually came and asked Jesus, would you put my one son on your right hand and my other son on your left hand? <clears throat> And maybe even Judas popped up and said, well, I, maybe I should be vice president, I'm, or at least the secretary of the treasury. Yeah. <laughs> now, see, they think that Christ is going to overthrow Rome, he's going to set up a cabinet, and he's going to choose somebody for his right, somebody for his left, and then cabinet members. And why shouldn't they think that? I mean, if you work the campaign for the president, and he gets an office, who gets the jobs? The people who work the campaign. And if you were the campaign manager, you may end up being the chief of staff. 
If you were the treasurer for the campaign, you might end up being the secretary of treasury when the president takes office. It makes sense. But it's funny because so far they've been failures. There's nothing great about them. But they're going to come in on Jesus' coattails. So there's a lot of people wanting to do that in this coming election, too. There are people who are, who are depending that if Obama wins, they'll get in on his coattails, and if McCain wins, they'll come in on his coattails. And so that's what they're betting on in this particular situation. Who's, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be sitting at your side? Now look at verse 47. Here's how Jesus responds. Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart, meaning he understood their motives and what they were talking about, took a little child and set him by him. Now there's no verse more important than this verse. Notice Jesus doesn't speak. He doesn't say one word. All he does is he takes a child and sits. He just, they said, who's going to be greatest? Who will be at your right hand? Who will be at your left hand? Jesus doesn't say a word. He takes this little child and sets that child right on his right hand in the seat of honor. Which is the seat of greatness. And with that one action, he undermines the whole worldly system. And Rome's understanding, which the apostles are bought into, on who is great. He undermines the whole Roman system, social system, hierarchy of who is worthy to sit at a person's right hand in a position of honor who is going to be great. You see, Rome had this hierarchy. There was the emperor, no one was above the emperor. And then below the emperor was the senate, made up all of aristocrats and then other noble families. And all these people were great in the Roman Empire. They made up 2% of the Roman Empire. They were the great ones. They were the ones who spoke and in, with authority and had the power to carry out that authority. And so greatness was based on status. It was based on rank. Were you of the noble class? And what the apostles, they're buying into this system. You see, even hospitality, if you invited someone to your house for a meal in the Roman Empire, now listen carefully, you would only invite someone to sit at your table who was your equal or your superior, not somebody lower than you. No one would sit at your right hand or left hand at a meal table who was not your equal or superior to you. That's how they ran the show. Don't think it's not run any differently in the United States or around the world, in the Western world. We have those same protocols, and there we do have an elite system in many ways. And with this action, what he does is he unravels this entire system that the apostles have bought into. And so they want to say, well, who's great? Is it going to be Judas the treasurer? Peter the revealer? Which one of us, Lord, is the greatest? And sits the child 
at his right hand in the place of honor. Now look at verse 48. Now he speaks. And he said unto them, Whoever receives a little child, a nobody, a person without status, a person who is absolutely in the bottom rung of the social structure, somebody who cannot give you anything in return, somebody who's expendable. Children were used for one thing. In the house of their parents, if their parents had a guest who came over, the children ran up when the guest came in the door and washed their feet. That's the only thing that they were used for. And they played outside and they did those kinds of things. But they had no use. They were on the bottom rung of the social ladder. So he says, whoever receives this little child, verse 48, in my name receives me. Now, this is the way the kingdom of God's social structure is going to be set up. Notice Rome's. Who's great in Rome's social structure? People of status. Who's great? That's the question. Who's great in God's kingdom? People who are lowly. Notice those words in verse 48. In my name. Do you see that? Whosoever receives this little one in my name, in my honor, on my behalf, receives me. This is what Jesus has come to do. Back in Luke 4, he's come to preach the gospel to the poor. He, is to, he reaches out to the lowly. He reaches out to those who are sick and to those who are demon-possessed and those who are outcast. This is who Jesus receives. Notice this. Whoever receives this. Does it say receives? In verse 48? Yes. Whosoever what? Receives. What does that mean? You know what it means. Welcomes. If I receive you, I welcome you. Whoever welcomes somebody of no status welcomes me. That's how God's kingdom operates. We are to identify with the lowly. Amen. But we want to identify with people who are way up there and I'm no different. If you ask me would I rather identify with a street person, not S-T-R-E-E-T-T, -T -T. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or a person way up here, I would choose the person way up there. That shows you that I've bought into the system. But that's not how God sees things. We are to welcome and identify with people who are lowly. Now look what else he says there in verse 48. And whosoever receives me, receives him who sent me. That's God the Father. Because he who is least among you will be great. That's God's way to greatness. You want to be God, do God's way? greatness, reach greatness in God's eyes, you need to identify with the lowly, and when you do that, you're identifying with Jesus, and you're identifying with God. If you only identify with people that are up here, 
you brought into the world system, the world's kingdom, not God's kingdom. Does that make sense? You see, this is what God's done. God chose to identify with us. He's way up here. And compared to God, we're way down here. And God condescended and came way down here and became one of us. He identified with us, even to the point of death. Christ, Jesus, although he were rich, became poor for our sakes. Jesus is the model of what greatness is. And if you want to be like Jesus, you have to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And he's telling you what to do. You are to reach out and welcome people not of status, people who can't offer who can offer you absolutely nothing in return for your kindness. Okay, section number four, beginning at verse 49. We see the disciples' failure to accept outsiders, someone who's outside the inner circle. Now you would think that what Jesus just said about this little child would clear some things up for these guys. It really doesn't. Look at verse 49. Now John answered and said, Look, look who's speaking. Not Peter. Now we're going to see John put his foot in his mouth. It's very interesting. Usually John doesn't do that. But in this case, he does. Usually it's Peter who pipes up. I can't believe Peter didn't pipe up real quick and say this. John got in before Peter. <laughs> But I bet you Peter said amen. Okay? Look at that. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now notice the situation. Here's a guy who was out there ministering, but John says, we forbade him because he was not one of us. He was an outsider. Now watch, he didn't have the status of being one of the 12 apostles. So it's all about status again. Now, he doesn't rub shoulders with Jesus every day like we do. So I just told him to stop doing that. Well, that's great. Guess what? This guy's casting out demons. How about you? Uh, what was the last... Uh, when this guy brought his kid, uh, were you able to cast out a demon? And the answer is what? No. no. Why would you forbid this guy who's succeeding when you failed? He's doing something that, uh, that you've been failing at. And not only that, if you look in verse 49, it says he was casting demons out in your name. He was doing it in the name of Jesus, which means although he was not one of the twelve, he was a disciple of Jesus. Jesus has many disciples beyond the twelve. We do know that, don't we? A lot of people in the crowd were disciples of Jesus. But because he's not part of the inner circle, John and the rest says, we, we, we told him to stop doing that. He's, uh, he doesn't reach our 
status to be using your name that way. So we tried to stop him because he wasn't an apostle. But the power of the kingdom and of the kingdom of God is not limited to the apostles. Jesus has many people way beyond the twelve that minister in his name and they're very effective. In fact, what Jesus will do in chapter 10 and verse 1 it says, After these things Jesus appointed 70 others also and he sent them out. Hey, way beyond the twelve. And guess what they were doing? They were out there ministering in the name of Jesus, and they were very effective. So, just because someone's not like you, doesn't mean they're not part of the kingdom of God. Just because they don't have your denomination behind their name, doesn't mean they're not part of the kingdom of God. Just, enough, just because they're not part of your inner circle, or reach the kind of people that you reach doesn't mean they're not part of the kingdom of God. God's power is not limited to those of special status or rank. Amen. Now, when we look at these four sections, we find four lessons. Section number one, we saw the problem was faithlessness. Faithlessness. The solution is faithfulness. Faith, F-U-L-L. Faithless versus faithful. We need to have be faithful, full of faith. We need to remember what God did in the past and the miracles that he did, and we need to stand on what he did in the past, knowing that he'll do it in the future. Amen. And we need to step out with full faith. Okay, the second problem was... A lack of understanding. They heard it with their ears, but they didn't understand it. The solution is don't have preconceptions. Don't have presuppositions. When you start off with a presupposition or a premise that's false, you will not be under, able to understand things. And I'm convinced that's why people have their theology all messed up. Because somewhere along the line, someone has given them a presupposition that they bought into and they start building on that presupposition and they build a false theology. And I think the difference is, and you've seen it in the teaching in this class, it's not because of what I'm doing, but it's just because we're going down verse by verse. If you throw your theology out the window in a sense, I'm saying this in a good sense, and you just read the scripture verse by verse without reading into the scripture, you will derive your theology from the scripture. Don't impose your theology upon the scripture. Derive your theology from the scripture. And so that involves us keeping an open mind. And so the problem is not understanding. The solution is stop having, get rid of those presuppositions. Okay, the third problem is a failure to understand God's measure of greatness. And I think we've seen this in the book of Luke so clearly that the solution is to identify with the lowly. And that means we need to have a humble spirit. We need to constantly be examining ourselves. Do we have a humble 
spirit? Does our lives model the life of Jesus Christ? Is our attitude like his? And then finally, we see a rejection of another Christian because he's not part of our circle or our denomination or our rank or our status. And we, the solution to that is that we need to accept all those people who God is using through his power to minister in his name. And we don't have to be judging them all the time. That's not our job. If they're not opposing Christ through their life, through heresy, through greed, and they're honestly out there ministering for Christ, they're not against us. That means they're for us and they're partners in this thing. The kingdom is much bigger than us. And God's doing things all over, using people that probably we wouldn't choose to be on our team. But guess what? He chooses them to be on his team. You say, well, if I were God, I wouldn't choose that person on my team. Well, he chose you to be on his team. And he's that much bigger than you are. And it's hard to believe that he reached down and he said, I call you to minister. I want you to minister. I want you to teach. I want you to serve. I want you to be a witness. I want you to love. If he called you, he can call anybody. If he called me, he can call anybody. We'll pick up there in verse 51 next week. The story of Jesus going through a Samaritan village. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we look at a passage, we see how far off we are in our lives as Christians. We look at our lives and we judge our lives only by morality. Uh, a list of do's and don'ts. But Lord, does our life emulate the life of Jesus? Do we get our hands dirty? Do we bend the knee to help those who are so far down that we have to get down there with them? Oh Lord, help us to examine our lives and make commitments afresh to be like Jesus, do the things that Jesus does. This is the mark of greatness in, in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't forget to counsel me.